right, thanks. Thanks for the warm welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Actually, you guys didn't really invite me. I invited myself. Um, I ran into Pastor LJ in Orange County last month at a conference, and uh, I was like, hey, you've invited some of our other guys to speak. How come you haven't invited me? And, uh, and then he invited me. So here I am. I, I, I've been actually in L.A. until just last night on vacation, and so uh, it was, the timing was great. One of the other pastors at our church is preaching at Harvest today. I was off the hook, and so I'm coming to you very chill in a good frame of mind. My emotional energy is excellent right now, and it's great to see some old faces, people uh, that from my past, some former Harvest folks that uh, I'm glad to see have landed in a really great, healthy church. And then some of you have no idea who I am, and it doesn't matter. Like This is a weird moment when you have a guest speaker because for both of us, in both directions, it can be a little awkward. I've been preaching at the same church for almost 30 years, and I've learned a, a thing or two about this moment right now. And here's what I can say. Um, what you're going to bring to this place, to this moment, is probably going to matter a lot more than what I bring to it. I'm going to try to bring my best. I, I, I've worked hard on this, but I've realized that here's maybe a story that will help visualize it. When I was in my 20s, I went to a comedy club, and I love stand-up comedy. I love laughing, but I was in a really bad mood that night, and I went to the Second City Comedy Club in a pretty foul mood, and it was one of those nights where I was like, I dare you to make, I don't even care about this where I am, and I realized nothing was funny for the first 30 minutes, and I don't think it had anything to do with the talent up on the stage. It was me. I was in just this worst mood. But once in a while, and I still remember the turning point, this one guy, you know one of those, those dudes who has no chin? It just goes straight from the neck to the lower lip. And he's like, you know, let's just get this out of the way right now. I know what I look like, and I, I'm fine with it except when I've got to change my pillowcases. You know, you tuck your pillow under your And I don't know why that joke, I, that's the moment that got me. I was like, that's hilarious. And I remember feeling it in my heart, like I so don't feel like laughing. And I had a choice at that moment. I could either laugh and just give in to it or just fight it all the way, and I gave in. And the rest of the show was actually kind of hilarious for me because of that turning point. I don't know what you're carrying into this place, but I don't think it entirely is going to be a function of how I do preaching. It's really about whether you're going to be willing to let the Lord somehow say something to you through all of this. And so I will do my best, but I'm going to ask you, before we even launch into it, and you're hearing something from somebody you don't know very well, um, if God does use anything that is said, and you feel your heart moving, don't fight him all the way. It's not really worth it. Give in to it in that moment. Don't try to create it yourself. But if there is a moment, just submit yourself to it. Go with it. I think your experience will be very, very different. Well, I need to move on because my whole message is about redeeming time, and I can't drag on with that title. But I want to talk about our relationship with time as Christ followers. And if you're not a Christ follower, I think this is still going to be a very relevant message. I want to start with this simple question, uh, and I hope I'm doing this right. Yeah, What sort of relationship do you have with time? When you hear the word time, what sort of feelings 
or tensions does that evoke in you? Maybe you feel like you have too much time. Maybe you feel like you have too little. Is it just flying by, or is every moment just dragging on and it's excruciating? Is time your friend? Is time your enemy? What are some of the strongest words or feelings you associate with this concept of time? In general, I'd say that we Americans have a very dysfunctional relationship with time. I, I was just doing a, a little bit of a statistics crawl uh, when I was looking into this message, and I learned that 768 million paid vacation days go unused every year. That's how many paid, free and clear vacation days we American workforce leave on the table every year. That's two, collectively, that's 2.1 million years of vacation days wasted every single year. That's messed up to me. Because I, for one, as a guy who, as Dave pointed out, um, I, I was lucky to graduate because I was having so much fun in college. And I love fun. I'm an Enneagram 7. If fun's not part of it, I'm not interested. I can't imagine leaving that many vacation days unused when you're getting paid anyway. What does that tell you about our culture, about our psychology, that we value work so much we would not stop the slowdown even if it doesn't hurt us financially? We tend to suffer from hurry sickness. They, they've done so many surveys of this. On, I, on average, I'd say over 40% of Americans would agree with this statement. I just don't have enough time to do everything I want to do. We also feel our mortality. The years creeping up on us. I am six months away from starting to get senior discounts at restaurants because they start giving them to you at 55. I am now a member of the AARP. I did it because I wanted a cheaper cell phone bill. So I, I just bit the bullet and I did it. But it's just a reminder that the years are flying. The anti-aging beauty industry is a $330 billion industry. And that entire $330 billion industry doesn't actually keep you from aging. It just helps you act or fake like you're not. It's just coating the surface of a thing that's really happening, whether you appear to be or not. So it's clear, I think, that as Americans, the general relationship we have with time is we're in a race against it. It's coming for us. We don't enjoy thinking about time. The less we can be conscious of the passing of time, the better. And in fairness, God's word is not like, it's, it's not a stranger to this idea, this feeling. God himself reminds us, Lord, Remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. Whether you live out the full average life expectancy of someone in America, or your life expectancy is cut shorter than you'd like, whether there's an accident, a war, anything, natural disaster, Life is always going to be shorter than we want it to be. That's just the, the truth of it. There's no escaping it. And God himself reminds us that this earthly life 
It's like that. It's so fast. It's done before you know it. And that should shape something that God wants us to see in our relationship with time. Now, you can read a lot of meaning into that verse and make God be saying all kinds of things because of these words. It's important not to figure out what you think God is saying because it agrees with what you think it's saying. Try to get a sense of why God would say words like this in Scripture because it's not just to stress us out. I've heard people use this verse to justify, like, that's why you have to maximize your output and your productivity. Because life is so short, you don't have that many days. Get as much done as you can before you die. I think that, is more, that says more about their personality than God's heart, in my opinion. I've heard other people say, so if, it's, if that's true, then who cares? Don't get your un- underwear in a bunch, just be chill. It's going to happen anyway. Stop caring about anything, just sit there. I don't think that's what God says. probably says more about that person than about God. I think what really God is trying to say is this. Your relationship with time and the idea of the finite, limited number of years you have in this earthly life reveals more about your grasp of eternity than anything else. You want to understand whether this this faith is just your Sunday culture, your moral code, or really the truth that defines your whole reality? Eternal perspective has to be a part of that. Do you understand what eternity really is and how that's supposed to impact our psyche and our real experience, our emotional framework? Because nothing reveals your eternal perspective more clearly than your current relationship with time. God's desire for us with respect to time is much more than maximizing the utility of every minute. Sorry, I... I just pushed something. I did a bad thing here. There we go. All right. The New Testament has two words for time. In English, we only have one, right? Time. And, and it's just a general word. The New Testament has two. And the first of those words is pretty straightforward. It's the one we're all very familiar with. It's chronos time. That's clock time. It's the time that's measured in seconds, minutes, days, weeks, months. It's this idea that Minutes pass, one after the other, and we are measuring them, and it's very concrete. This is the general sense in which all of us have to relate to time. And we have no choice but to live in chronos time. It's how we measure our life. And because we are finite beings, we have no choice but to move linearly in one direction a long time. In spite of our fiction and our obsession with time travel, it's not possible. You can only move one direction in time, and we're stuck on that one axis. Have you noticed what an obsession we have with multiverses and time travel in our science fiction? Because I think we're, something deep in us wants to reject this idea that we're so bound slavishly to this thing called time, and we're stuck on it. Because we are in that framework of time, just traveling linearly down it, we think about chronos time entirely in terms of sequence, in tenses. We have past, present, and future. And the irony is, though those three tenses are all valid ways of thinking about chronos time, most of us obsessively dwell in only two of those tenses 
And they are the two over which we have the least amount of control or agency. Most of us, many of us, are stuck in the past. This is a moment, if you think about it, over which you have absolutely no control. The past is the past because it has already happened, and you can't go back and undo it or redo it. It is just there like a handprint in concrete. It is unchangeable. It is a statement of fact what has happened. And some people are so marked by a thing that happened, they find that they cannot, they simply cannot. I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. I'm not saying you're not willing to. It's try as you might. It's as if you can't get past the past. And so such a person will obsessively replay what has already happened before. It might be a past glory. It might be a past regret. Or maybe like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite is a combination of both. I used to be able to throw pigskin quarter mile. Give me a break. If only coach would have put me in in fourth quarter in the state championship. And for Uncle Rico, I'm just referencing that because it's one of my favorite movies. Tells you something about me. It tells you that he could not move past this defining event in his life, which he then ascribed this holy kind of sacred moment, this importance that had that been different, everything would have been different. And because it didn't go the way he wanted, it has shaped his entire life. He cannot move past it. And God is aware that that is the case for some people And by way of exhortation and encouragement through the Apostle Paul, he offers us these words, but one thing I do, Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It is not to minimize the profound impact that the past has on us, but it is to recognize our complete inability to do anything about it other than to remain stuck in it. It's okay to acknowledge that the past has shaped and even scarred us, but it's also important to recognize that that has already happened and obsessing and dwelling over it changes nothing except the future moments. It creates more past moments rooted to that one. And so we're encouraged by God. And in this context, what's interesting is Paul has just given all his past glories, the things that used to be on his spiritual resume to show what kind of good person he was. He's saying even these past glories must be forgotten because that was yesterday's achievement. The way God wants us to live is not rooted permanently in the past. The only times he cautions us over and over to remember the past is to remember the way that he worked in our lives or the way that we departed from him in the past and how that affected our lives. It's not wrong to look back, but it's really unhealthy to remain fixated and rooted only in the rearview mirror in your relationship with time. Another large group of people are obsessed not over the past, but over the future. I can understand that because it feels like we have some control over the future, doesn't it? That's why we tell our kids, study hard, because if you study hard, you'll get a good job. 
And maybe you can control that, but what you can't control is whether or not the job you picked when you're 18 or 22 is the job you actually want to be good at. Whether a huge paycheck will erase the feeling of existential meaninglessness your life has taken on. You know, I laugh because everybody seems to be so happy with their lives, except on Sunday after church, at least at Harvest, probably at restorations, much healthier. But at Harvest, if you walk around our fellowship hall and go, hey, tomorrow's Monday, you excited about a new week? I think maybe over the 27-year history of our church, when I've asked that, I've only gotten three or four people who said, yes! Most people, the minute you remind them that the weekend is ending, there's this groan of, oh, I hate my job. I don't want to go to work. I think that's messed up. We can act like we can control the future, but the truth is we evolve all the time. So this idea that we can engineer the outcomes, aim for something, and make sure we get it, that's simply not true. It's an illusion. But we love this idea of agency. This idea that I can plan and realize everything I want for the days ahead. I think that's one of the big reasons why we're so obsessive about the future. And often, the emotional energy required to obsess over the future comes from looking in the past and going, I don't want that ever again. I don't ever want that again. And so we obsess about the future because we're driven often by the pain of the past. Our regrets or our desire to latch back on to a former glory and the way that made us feel. Here's great irony, maybe the tragedy of all that, is that the one-tenth in this linear relationship with time that is the most overlooked by most people is the only one we have any control over. It's now. The present. Did you ever read those chuggy posters that say, the present is called the present because it's a gift. After the eye roll, it hits you, wow, that's true. (laughs) It's profound. The only real relationship you can have with time that has any meaning at all is this one right now. It's the only moment you're actually living in. And when you are living in it, it's amazing how it changes your perspective on time. And this is where I think we naturally segue into the second word that the New Testament offers us for time. It's a word that we don't really have a great parallel for in English, so I have to flesh out the idea, but it's a word called kairos time. You can spell it K-A-I-R-O-S. It's a Greek word. And if chronos time is measured in minutes, kairos time is measured in moments. Cronus time is a unit of measure, and kairos time is a unit of meaning. We measure or describe chronos time in terms of quantity, but we measure kairos time in terms of its quality. Here's another way of saying it. Chronos time is the ticking of the clock, and kairos time is the, the nature of the moment that just passed. Was it just another minute that's going to pass and burn away? Another ember flying off of the campfire into the air? Or did something happen in that minute that made it more than just the passing of another 60 seconds? So there's two senses of Kairos time described in the Bible. And the first is this idea 
that kairos time is time in which we are fully present, fully engaged, fully alive. It's where you are so aware of the moment you're in that you're no longer aware of the ticking of the clock or the passage of Kronos time because the moment you're in is so rich, you are surprised when you look at your watch and realize how much Kronos time has passed. Psychologists, behavioral economists, are now describing this, this, this concept, this experience, as flow. right? Flow, or in the zone. There are people you'll meet with at a Starbucks, and you're constantly aware of Kronos time because you could tell they've got about 45 minutes of patience with you, and they keep doing this about half an hour, and they're like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's great for you. And you could tell they're trying to find an exit out of this conversation because they've pretty much reached the limit of their engagement with you. And others, it's like, you're like, hey, I know I asked for this meeting, but don't you, need, don't you have places you got to go? Um, they're so present with you, you're no longer aware that the minutes are ticking by because this conversation, this human connection is so rich, so deep, you're actually in it. You're living in that moment right now. Do you know how rare such times are? Chronos time is inescapable. We're all stuck in it, and we all are so aware of it. Some of us, we obsessively measure our lives only in that and we rarely experience Kairos moments of such full engagement and presence and being alive that really it, it, it touches the way we relate to time because it's all just passing minutes for us. In an entire day, many people, especially if you, if you read these sociology research studies, many fathers cannot recall a single meaningful connection moment with their children. They can log the minutes that they played catch or they did something. I sat there at the table. I did their homework. But they cannot recall a single meaningful moment of connection with their children at the end of a day. A moment where like two human beings actually shared a moment of time. Many married couples report the same thing. I've been living with this person for years. We hardly really engage each other. We just cohabit the same physical building. Our dysfunctional relationship with time isn't just because time is a limited resource, but because it's so often such an unsatisfying resource to spend in our lives. And God wants to redeem our relationship with time very much by teaching us how to convert minutes into moments. How to stop just letting the seconds tick by and learn to be more alive, more fully present in this present moment now. Because that's the moment most of us are never in. We're dwelling on what just happened and thinking about what's going to happen. We're never right here, right now. Some of you are right, doing that right at the second, aren't you? It's how you endure the things you don't want to be at. Like this moment right now, maybe. I don't know. The easiest way to lose time is to not be present in the present. To just let it be minutes that pass by without being present or engaged in any of it. Have you noticed that the Buddhist concept of mindfulness has come charging into the business world. Everywhere I look, business books are being written 
about mindfulness. And I think that's really the sense in which God is telling us Kairos time is being mindful in this moment. And there's another sense of Kairos time that's also very important in the New Testament. And that is Kairos as a, a description of a window or a moment of opportunity or decision. A small time, chronos-wise, during which a very important act or decision can happen, which will shape the time that comes after that. I, I still remember there was this young girl in our youth group that every boy wanted to date. But she seemed like stratospherically out of reach for most guys. She went on to become Miss Illinois and, and went on to become a, an actress. And I just remember all the guys kind of wishing. They, but one guy, the least likely dude, he went to prom with her. Because there was this narrow window which everyone assumed she's got a million offers and no one was asking her. You know how they say the prettiest girl often gets no dates because everyone assumes someone else is going to ask her. This guy just went for it. He's like, I'm, I'm young once. I'm going to go for it. And he asked her, and she goes, sure. Not yes, but just, yeah, sure. And she went. And they had a good time. And now he can say he went to prom with Miss Illinois. A lot of other guys can't say that because they missed that Kairos moment. That's a stupid illustration in a way, right? But, you know, here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. We all know what that feels like where the window to say yes or no, to move forward or not, it's not going to stay open forever. I can't tell you how many times we reminded our kids how you perform in these four years called high school are going to affect how you experience the next 60 years of your human life. It doesn't seem fair mathematically that four years should have such a huge impact on the remaining years of your life, but that's just the way the Western world is structured. You don't get to get it right forever. In spite of what computing has taught us, life doesn't come with a control Z, an undo button. You can't just do a hard reboot on everything. Some people try, but the truth is some windows only stay open for this long. And when they're closed, they're closed. That's it. That's the sense of this this picture of Kairos. And the word Kairos comes from a Greek character in mythology. He was one of the sons of Zeus. And it's very hard to find artwork that's still existing of this god, but descriptions about this god are written in multiple places. And the physical description is of a very beautiful young god, a male god, who had winged feet. He was a very swift runner, and he had a huge flowing lock of hair, basically a front ponytail. Okay, It just came out like a horse's tail right in front. And as he's running, it would fly like this. And the idea is, as you see it coming, as he comes past, you can grab hold of him right then, but he's completely bald on the back of his head so that once he passes you, you try, but you can't get anything. You're like, it just comes like, like slippery. And it's this beautiful picture of what this idea is, that there are moments in our lives that are beautiful, they will change everything if you catch them, but they're fleeting. They run fast, you so pass. And if, as you see it coming, you lay hold of it, you got it. But if you miss it, that's basically your lifetime regret. 
and all you get is bald scalp. Nothing to hold on to. The Greeks were geniuses when it came to pictorial descriptions of philosophical ideas. And this is one of their best, I think. This idea that sometimes the moments that will shape your whole life are going to come running past you just a little bit. When they part, when they pass, it's done. Now, you got to understand I'm a preacher and not a, a motivational speaker. Okay? So I'm not telling you go for it, whatever it is you want. We're going to bring God into the room in just a moment. But I want to at least establish that's where the word kairos comes from. It's this idea that the moments of opportunity are narrow windows, and when they close, they close. It's not a distinctly Christian idea. If you have ever seen the movie Dead Poet Society, and, and by the way, I should have, I, I neglected to talk about this. Th- this idea of, of being obsessed over the past, he gives us Philippians 3.13. And this idea about obsessing over the future, he, wor- he, he uh, cautions us, don't plan for the future as if you can control it. And don't let it weigh you down as if you're filled with worry about it. Those are the two faces of obsessing over the future, right? Is I'm either going to get everything I want or everything bad that I don't want is going to happen to me. I've got to avoid it. In response to that, God's word says, don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't even know what a single day is going to bring. He also says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. John Keating in Dead Poet Society gives that famous admonition to the boys in his prep school class. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Completely secular saying, but it captures the idea of kairos. In the popular um, musical Hamilton, he says, I am not throwing away my shot. That has hit such resonance with the American populace because of this idea of kairos. Because everyone watches that musical, they think, I'm not going to miss my shot either. In the words of that great theologian and philosopher Eminem, look, if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? Now, so far... That's an idea, that's a talk that could be given in any setting outside the church. And the point of this idea of kairos in scripture is not whatever you want, get it while the getting's good. Because that would just be another way of losing your sense of the value of time, of just going after everything your own heart desires, because don't you also know that your heart, your own heart is the thing that betrays you the most? I bought so many things that I thought were going to change my life, and I'm bored of them within a week. Any of you like that? Oh, if I could just get that shirt, I'm going to feel so good. And then after you wear it three times, you're like, I never want to see that shirt again. I love this car. I'm sick of this car. I want a new car. Your own heart is the most unreliable guide 
for your life. It's not other people who have done the most damage. For most of us, it's our own fickle heart that has led us astray. So the message here is not seize everything your own heart wants because your own heart is deceitful beyond all measure. It doesn't even know what it wants. The message here is not as Kairos is running by, grab everything because the Kairos moments that matter most are the ones that God sends running past you. You know those, um, those restaurants where they have sushi come by on a conveyor belt? That really mediocre but cost-effective sushi? And that's a good picture of Kairos moments. On any given day, many of such moments will come running past you. Not all of them are worth grabbing. Each one you pick up will cost you something. And sometimes you pick up a plate and you take one bite, you're like, nope. Now, don't, do, don't put it back on the conveyor belt. That's immoral. Not to mention disgusting. But you wish you could because not everything you grab that's coming past you is worth grabbing. So even then you need some filter, some framework for discerning which of these moments that are com coming past me, each one's going to cost me, which ones are worth grabbing. And this is where I treasure the words that Paul offers in Ephesians 5. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. That word opportunity is kairos. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And that's the key. The key is not to grab hold of everything that runs past you that your heart wants, but to understand what God wants for you because he is not against you. He's not trying to give you a life in spite of your wishes. He is the one who shaped you. He is with you. He is for you. And if you lay hold of what he wants for you, you will be so much better off. Anyone who's ever had a teenage child understands this. You think I'm trying to ruin your summer. I'm trying to just be on your case. I want you to have options so that if you don't want wealth, you don't have to have it. If you want to travel to tropical places, you can do it. If you want to grow your hair long and write poetry and not starve to death, you can do it because I'm trying to equip you in this season of your life to tackle all those things. point is not to do what you want most in every season, but what is truly best for your life. And the one who is best at leading you there is the one who's made you. The call in scripture to seize the moment is not a call to feed your heart's deepest desire, but to lay hold of what the will of God is for you and not miss a single one of those. Because if you do that, the God of the universe who loves you will actually shape the remaining moments of your life. And if you reject him and try to find a life you can be happy with all on your own, I find some of the least happy people I know are the ones who have fundamentally rejected anything God might have to say to them and are stubbornly clinging to a life that they define their own happiness, only to recognize that they don't know what happiness really is. They know what pleasure is, but they don't know what happiness, real joy, really is. 
The call of Scripture is to seize every moment which brings into our lives the will of God for us. The Old Testament character Esther perfectly captures this sense of kairos. She was the queen of Persia. She became the queen in a phenomenal rags to riches story. And when one of the high-ranking officials plotted to have her people, the Jews, put to death, exterminated, her uncle Mordecai approached her and said, listen, you're the king's favorite queen. Go now and beg him for the lives of your people. And Esther heard that. She was moved by it. But she also knew that anyone who approached the king without an invitation could be instantly put to death. He was asking her to risk her life in order to use her position of privilege and access to save the lives of many people. And she protested, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd be like, hey, you got to understand that you're not asking me for a small thing here. This is not can I borrow some sugar. It's will you risk your whole life for others? And her uncle understood her protest, but then he drops this bomb on her. Who knows, Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but in the times just before Jesus, they they translated into Greek when Greek was becoming the main language. They translated the whole Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That book is called the Septuagint. Sometimes you see it in books referred to as LXX, okay? That book records this verse, and the word time is kairos. She perfectly captures this idea of a moment in your life that will shape every other moment that will follow for you and for other people. And Esther famously responds to her uncle's challenge with those words, if I perish, I perish, but I'll do it. We're all going to die, but not every death will be meaningful. We're all going to live, but not every life will be meaningful. We've heard the trite saying that everybody exists, but not everybody lives. I think that's so true. So many people fight their hearts the entirety of their earthly existence. Never find a place of peace. And that's not because they're bad people. It's because it starts with so many bad things that happen to them. This is the road to freedom. To stop fighting the God who made you and loves you. Stop rejecting him and trying to find a peace, a place for yourself. Because there's no such place. To discern what the will of God is, to lay hold of those defining moments in your life. Everyone who knows me well knows I hate musicals. It would be, if I weren't a pastor, I might consider the mission of turning every musical into just another play. I don't like when people burst out into song for no reason. It's just weird to me. But the story that drives a lot of musicals are so powerful. And in the musical Rent, there's this one song that I really respond to. 525,600 minutes. 525,000 moments 
so dear. It's like this guy is reading my sermon notes or something. 525,600 minutes, how do you measure measure a year? In daylights, in sunsets, in midnights, in cups of coffee. I'm not going to sing it. You could hear the tune in your own head. In inches, in miles, in laughter, in strife. In 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year in a life? How about love? I mean, everyone's got the same number of minutes in a year. I think for the vast majority of people, many of those minutes are wasted. They're just burned up. Redeeming time is not about making the most productivity out of time, but as often as possible, converting minutes into real moments. Let me close with this idea. When a thing is limited, the limitation of that resource completely defines your psychology about it. So for me as a pastor, unlike some of you ballers out there, money is generally going to be one of those limited resources in my life. I get paid, I get paid very well by our church, so I'm not complaining. I'm not poor. I'm just not rich like some of you all. And because it's a limited resource... The limitation of it is a constant factor, not an unwelcome one, it's a necessary one, but I can't just go and do the things that my mind can dream up. As an Enneagram 7, this mind of mine can imagine so many ways to spend a billion dollars. If you gave me a billion dollars, we would not be bored ever. But the truth is because it's limited, I'm constantly having to make allocation choices. I'm aware of every dollar because they're limited. When you make something infinite, that whole part of it goes away. Jeff Bezos, the last time I checked in February, had a net worth of $178 billion. Crazy. Although it's not mathematically infinity, that is, in practical purposes, infinite dollars. When you have $178 billion, dollars no longer have any meaning. Now it's the only limiting factor is not what you can afford, but what you can dream of. So he spent, like, how much money did he spend on that clock in Texas? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? He, I think it's $100 million. He spent $100 million making a clock that will be powered by nuclear energy and will stay accurate for 25,000 years or something like that. That's what happens when you have so much money. It's like infinity money, and now your crazy imagination is the only rate-limiting factor. When you turn a thing that's usually finite and make it infinite, unlimited, it changes how you relate to that thing. For Jeff Bezos, he has not asked in many years, can I afford it? He only asks, can it be done according to the laws of physics? That's about it. That's the only thing that limits him. And do you understand that what the Bible holds out for us is a hope that one day there will be no more death, no more sadness, no more parting. All of this limitation of time, this idea that I only get maybe 70, 80 years on a good life, that goes away. And suddenly when you turn the limited days and years of our lives into an infinite resource, an unlimited resource, Chronos time ceases to have any meaning at all. 
I, I used to think about this as a kid when I learned in church that we would have eternal life. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem that great. It just makes it seem like time no longer has any meaning at all. And my youth pastor went, exactly. And I'm like, you're crazy. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Time has to have meaning. So I would sit there and thinking, like, how would I spend 10,000 years? And it sounded like hell more than heaven. Trying to fill 10,000 years. When you take something limited and make it infinite, it's no longer about how few or how many you have. It's about what you do with them. That present moment. The, the point of eternal life is not that you have infinity minutes ahead of you. It's that now you're finally free to be fully focused only on the minute that matters. That's the one right now. Stop worrying that you're going to run out soon because you won't. There will be an infinity of them still to come. It finally frees you to live in this one moment right now. And the invitation of God again and again through his word is you can begin to practice that even before you die. Right now. Train your heart and your soul to learn the value of seizing this one moment. When you do that, you lay hold of infinity. You grasp eternity, which God has put in your heart. You're finally free to stop worrying about how few or how many minutes you have and be fully present in the one you have now. I see families that are trying so hard. Usually in a family, there's one person who's trying constantly to gather people together. But I see families who go through the motions putting a trip together, but when they go, they don't even engage each other. They have to fill every moment with some exciting activity because the truth is they don't like each other that much. They're not that familiar with each other. They're not comfortable around each other. And instead of working that, they just keep filling it with more stuff to distract them from the passing of minutes. We can begin to practice turning minutes into moments right now to eliminate the slavish dependence on Kronos time and realize that a life is actually measured in the handful of moments that actually mattered before we died. The day we finally looked at our kid in their eyes and said the things we most wanted to say and they had a chance to say those things back to us. Whole lifetimes passed. People die and are buried before they ever have moments like that. Let's not let that happen to us. To lay hold of eternal life is not just to have an insurance policy tucked away for after you die. It is to begin practicing right now in this moment, in this life, how to redeem the value of time. To insist that as many of the minutes of our lives as possible have real meaning, real power, real presence in life. You can live to 100 and only truly be alive a month of that time. Or you could live till 50 and live a fuller life than most people. I challenge you in the love of Jesus Christ not to waste this life counting the minutes, obsessing over the past, obsessing over the future, because one day we're going to be set free from that. There will be an infinity of days to come. On that day, we can finally be fully free to realize the most precious moment we have is the one we're in right now. 
Take that away, and eternity is a curse. But have richness now, and eternity is a great gift. I want to invite you to bow with me. I know I need to bring this to a close, so I just want to invite you just for a moment in silence. Is God saying something to you? Has he said anything to you? Just respond to him in your own heart, your own words, whatever you feel you need to say to him. And I'll close this in a word of prayer in just a moment. Let's pray together. God, we confess that we have a very complicated and often unhealthy relationship with time. Some of us, it just feels like it's dragging on. We're miserable. We're enduring this life. For others, feel the unfairness of it. It's fleeting. It's too little of it. It's too short. I pray, living God, that you would rescue us from this broken relationship with time. Each one of us in this room, that we would hear your call to be present, to stand before you, to fully engage in this moment now that you have given as a gift. We can do nothing about yesterday. We cannot guarantee ourselves tomorrow. But this is the day you have made. Teach us to rejoice, to be glad in it, to find you in this day. Teach us to stop chasing the broken dreams of our fickle, unreliable hearts. Help us to understand how to discern your will. To lay hold of the life you lovingly set out for us. I pray, God, that you would rescue us from our broken relationship with time. And teach us, while we're still on this earth, how to live with an eternal perspective. Pray in Jesus' name.